Hello, folks. Welcome to Full Green Ahead, a podcast created by environmental enthusiasts from Cole Harbor District High School. My name is Evan Coakley, and I'm your host. And throughout this journey, we will discuss climate change, the state of global climate politics. We will be talking with the decision makers leading the fight against climate change and discuss the little things you can do to make a positive difference in and around your community. And make sure to stick around for Did You Know? where Mr. Milne delivers to facts on climate science with witty commentary. So jump on the green train because we're going full green ahead. Now it is time for our interview with interim leader of the Green Party of Canada, Joanne Roberts. Joanne, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me here. Now, uh, after last election, the Greens just elected three new MPs, and it was their best election result in history. And um, specifically, Jenica Adwin in Fredericton, which seemed to blindside everybody. So uh, just how important was uh, picking up a seat in Atlantic Canada for the party? Very important, very important. It was a significant win. You know, I said to Jenica when I saw her in Ottawa, I said, you know, you really carry the weight of everyone who voted green in the Maritimes. And because, you know, we came second in a a number of ridings, we had over 10% in 20 out of 25 ridings and only elected one MP, Jenica Atwin. So for all of those people who voted green, it was a triumph to have a green elected. It meant a great deal. Do you think it um, legitimizes the party as, a, as another option in the Atlantic provinces? I think that um, the provincial wins in New Brunswick and in PEI certainly went a long way to legitimizing the brand, if you will, the Green Party. But to make the leap to the federal is very, very important. And But I think it's when you look at how do you grow a party like that. Um, Jenica certainly stands on the shoulders of David Kuhn, for example, who was elected in, you know, his riding is part of her riding. If we look at where we came second in Beausajour, we came second to Dominic LeBlanc, probably the most powerful MP in Atlantic Canada. So by coming second to him, you have to look that uh, that riding encompasses both Megan Mitten's riding and Kevin Arsenault's riding, who've been elected as provincial Greens. So I think we're seeing provincial success giving us federal success. And um, it's why I hope that in the next provincial election here in Nova Scotia, we see a green breakthrough. Is there anything that the, uh, the Greens would do differently in the next election campaign? That's a very good question, Evan, and, and it's one we're certainly struggling with right now. We thought 2019 would be the election where climate was the ballot box question. It didn't turn out to be that way. We talked a lot about it. We talked about the environment a great deal, but it didn't translate into the level of votes we had expected. So we're trying to figure out why was that? Um, On the other hand, we broke through the million vote barrier, which for us was really important. Um, So we did grow our vote. So part of that message obviously was getting through. What we're struggling with now is without proportional representation. So if you're dealing with first past the post, you really have to concentrate your effort. For example, 
We had a million votes for Greens across this country. We have three MPs. There were just over a million votes for the Bloc. They have 32 MPs. Now, how does that work? It works when you concentrate your votes in a specific area. Um, one interesting story that came out of the campaign was in British Columbia when uh, the NDP sent out those um, attack flyers. Mm. Uh, I was just curious if that impacted the Greens election results at all or if um, just Jagmeet Singh's spike in popularity impacted the Greens results. Probably both. I, I would think that, um, you know, Jagmeet Singh got a very good bounce coming out of the, um, the debate. Uh, he had his famous line, Mr. Deny and Mr. Delay, proves the value of having a really good tagline. Uh, but he also dealt with what we called the blackface, brownface scandal extremely well. So if that didn't hurt Mr. Trudeau as much as it helped uh, Mr. Singh. And it meant that we started to see that NDP growth in the last 10 days of the campaign. Now, if you add to that in BC a very, I'll call it somewhat vicious attack, very um, negative flyers and ads uh, against Greens on Vancouver Island in particular. I think it did hurt our vote. Um, certainly if you ask Elizabeth May, she'll say it absolutely hurt the vote because her own vote, which had been riding at about 60% in her riding, went down to 49. And I can't think that there was a lot that Elizabeth did differently in this campaign. However, you know, divisive issues, like abortion, which we fought that one hard, but our position was never clearly heard. Enough suspicion was planted that people somehow, you know, started calling us those names that we don't like, like, you know, conservatives with, uh, you know, compost bins. and uh, mm -hmm. That hurt. And um, we chose not to fight back with the same kind of negative approach. That's what we believe as a party, but sometimes it's hard to be the nice guy. Yeah. Um, so now after the election, we find ourselves in a minority parliament. Uh, so I'm curious, how will the Greens go about navigating a minority parliament uh, that's a rather strong minority for Justin Trudeau with um, holding only three seats in the House? Yeah, I wish the numbers or the math was different. You know, three seats isn't the problem. <laughs> the problem is 24 and 32 for the uh, Bloc and the NDP uh, because it gives them more weight and it allows them to use uh, their votes so that ours become not as important. Um, so that's just the luck of the numbers. I mean, you can be in a minority government where three seats really gives you power. Look at BC. Uh, however, you know, Elizabeth and I met with the Prime Minister just before the session opened to talk about what will we support. Uh, we've made it clear we will not vote confidence um, until they show us that they're going to take strong action on climate. And that either means turning down TMX, raising the targets and giving us a plan to show how they're going to get there. Uh, so we voted again. We will vote against the speech from the throne when it comes up in January, for example. Um, but we have said, you know, we will support pharmacare. We will support a number of measures where we, uh, the bringing in the new legislation on the United Nations uh, Declaration on Indigenous People, the rights of Indigenous people, UNDRIP. You know, we'll support that legislation. So I think that the Prime Minister knows that he will have green votes for progressive items, um, but he won't have confidence from us. 
uh, if he's not moving on climate. Now, it is interesting to look at what three votes can do, though. When you combine your three votes with either the NDP or um, the bloc, we may have some success in uh, creating some kind of a group position where we work across priority lines. It'd be interesting to see where the conservatives land in this, because I was thinking we would start to see conservatives supporting this government to keep them sort of right of center. But without a leader right now, with them not wanting to go into an election, it'll be interesting. We'll have strange bedfellows in the House of Commons. Um, throughout the campaign trail, uh, Justin Trudeau and his Liberal uh, government promised to reach zero net emissions by 2050. Now, my question is, um, does he have a legitimate plan, or is it the new electoral reform? Well, <laughs> yeah, I... I don't want to be critical if, if he actually means it. I'd love to think he means it. What worries me is 2050, Justin Trudeau won't be prime minister. Mm -hmm. He does not have to be accountable to 2050. What he has to be accountable for is the next two, three, four years. And if he set us a target that was four years from now, that we could measure him against, even if it wasn't super ambitious, I think we'd feel better about that as Greens. And that's what we've been pushing for. I mean, I know people's eyes glaze over when they hear the word target. But let's talk about show us how much carbon you can cut per year in the next three years. Just give us a short-term idea and a plan to do it. That's what I think is fair to expect. It's easy. It is really easy to say net zero by 2050 because you know you're not going to be around likely uh, to have to answer for it. So I hope it's not the, ne the, the new electoral reform. Please, it's not that. We don't have the time. Electoral reform, yes, affects someone like me, and we can live with that. Not doing this affects everybody in this country. And that seems to be what we haven't quite figured out yet. <laughs> Uh, going forward, is there a way um, for a government to uh, focus on climate issues and climate action while balancing the interests of Western Canada and the so-called Western alienation we're hearing all about lately? I believe there is. Um, and I believe that we're starting to get some indication of what that might look like. Uh, for example, there are a lot of uh, abandoned wells in uh, Alberta right now. And they're a huge drain and they're a huge cost to the province of Alberta that they have to deal with whether they move ahead with expanding the oil sands or not. The possibility is the federal government can say, we'll take on that liability for a dollar. We'll take over all those wells and we'll be responsible for, you know, uh, making good use of them and putting them back into uh, uh, an acceptable place. That would be a huge commitment and I think it's one the federal government could do because it would also then lead to the next step, which is let's take a look at what we do for workers to transition them out. I mean, right now we have, you know, Frontier Tech, the, the largest expansion of the oil sands that we have ever seen in Canada being proposed to the federal government. And we have Premier Kenny saying this is in the national interest. Where have we heard this before? I mean, we've had a lot of things lately in the national interest that happen to be in Alberta. And, and I, I think it is time that this government showed its willingness to say no to something, but to turn around and say, yes, you want to renegotiate the fiscal equation? We'll do that. 
you want to take a look at equalization, we'll do that. That there is, you know, to use an American term, some quid pro quo for saying no to things we don't need mm -hmm. on an environmental front. That, I think, is I think Albertans just want to see that we appreciate what they're going through, that they're going to go through a hard time and they're going to need help with that. And I think that's the message. I'm, get, I'm encouraged by Christia Freeland doing some of this, um, you know, diplomatic uh, cross-country touring. I think if she's spreading that message that the federal government will not leave you high and dry, but we have to m start moving on these things, that would be encouraging. Um, we see the uh, COP25 Madrid Climate Conference just wrapped up. Um, are you satisfied with the conclusion of the summit? No. Like most people, I'm very depressed by it. Uh, the good news is that we have the chance to get to Glasgow next year with new t new targets and to show the plan. Um, this was to work on the details of that. Um, interesting, our daughter went to COP25 in Madrid. And I had a chance to talk to her last night about what she thought. And she said, it's very obvious when you're at COP that the world is divided, almost north and south, uh, that we have a world of the haves that are doing well and not taking enough action, and the world that is uh, what we would call a developing countries that are begging for action and we're not doing it. And she said, and you have social action groups and environmental groups all pushing for change and then you have these large governments that are you know moving very slowly and she said it, it she came home you know encouraged by what she saw from youth but super discouraged uh, from what she saw from politicians including Canada so it is a bit discouraging uh, I'd like to turn to a local issue now and uh specifically the Nova Scotia's government's handling of the Northern Pulp situation. So should it be shut down? I don't see another way forward at this point. Uh, but it's much like I said about Alberta. If we accept, I mean, the company that runs Northern Pulp, Paper Excellence, has had five years to tell us how they were going to deal with effluent. And now they're saying they don't have enough time uh, to meet the scientific requirements, and they're asking all of us to take that risk with them, um, and especially to ask the Pictou Landing First Nation to put up with ongoing pollution for at least two more years on the good faith that they're going to have a scientifically-based answer in two years' time. Mm -hmm. They haven't come up with it in five years. I don't know why we should trust them to come up with it in two. Uh, I get this is a very difficult decision for the province, but quite honestly, we've reached the end of the road with Northern Pulp. We have the Boat Harbor Act, which says that that effluent uh, pond has to stop being used at the end of January. And if we don't, if we do not honor that, I think we should all be ashamed as Nova Scotians. What does it mm -hmm. say when our government passes legislation and then says, whoops, couldn't deal with that at the last minute. So that would be my first reason. The second reason that I, I'm critical of this government, and I was so hopeful just yesterday, um, is I hope they will do the right thing. Yesterday they said they would base their decision on science. That was a good thing. Today we hear that they're going to delay it. Mm -hmm. um, and that worries me. I believe that at least 
in the short term, this mill has to be shut down. But then I think we also have to recognize that there are industries and workers who depend on what goes through that mill. And we should take the exact amount of money we're putting into subsidies to keep that mill going, and we have for, you know, since 1967, and put that money into retraining, support for pensions, support for workers, economic development in the Pictou County area. This could be not just the end of a mill. This could be the beginning of a new future for that area. And I think that's how we have to see it. Now, uh, for our final question, uh, well, it's actually, it's a two-parter. Okay. Will you, in, uh, and you've heard it here, folks, will you endorse a candidate for green leadership? No, I won't, and I can't. Um, as interim leader, I'm in charge of the, of the leadership contest. And I have said, first of all, I'm not going to run for it. And secondly, I won't endorse a candidate because I want the... Um, the actual process, to be mm -hmm. fair, and as someone who had a lot of say over the process, if I endorse someone, it, I might be seen as sort of, you know, weighing the scales. So no, I won't endorse a candidate, but I am excited. I can't give you all the names now, but we're seeing some pretty significant names come forward uh, to seek the leadership, so that's encouraging. Very exciting. Yeah. Joanne, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. That was Interim Leader of the Green Party of Canada, Joanne Roberts. Welcome to Did You Know with Mr. Milne. Today's Did You Know is on a Dalhousie Bay of Fundy plastic study recently published in November 2019 with sourced information from the Dalhousie University website. What do white plastic shopping bags, a tire encrusted in barnacles, rubber lobster bands, garbage bags buried in sandy grit, and a derelict lobster trap have in common? They have all been found on the bottom of the Bay of Fundy. A research team at Dalhousie University, led by Alexa Goodman, a Dalhousie researcher in the Marine Affairs Program, found 47 pieces of plastic debris on the bottom of the Bay of Fundy in the article published in November. By extrapolating the survey area that they worked with, the researchers estimate that there are over 1.8 million pieces of garbage on the bottom of the Bay of Fundy. Another researcher on this project, Dr. Tony Walker, says the research findings reinforce the need to cut down on the amount of plastic waste that ends up in the marine environment. Dr. Walker says the estimate of abundance provides valuable information for governments to implement management strategies to reduce plastic and other kinds of benthic marine pollution at source. In other words, this research gives government departments cause to change their plastic policies. Are you listening, Mr. McNeil? <laughs>